You're listening to Notes from Norwich. This is episode 24 of Notes from Norwich, and I am Chris, and I'm here with just one of my other uh, fellow guests today, fellow guests, fellow co-hosts, who is Marguerite. Hello. Hello. We are without Jan today, uh, but we are going to talk about chapter 48. Today is the feast, the commemoration of St. John of the Cross, who is one of my personal favorites, so... um, so I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, but we are talking about chapter 48. We're talking about mercy and grace and other stuff. Yep. Where do we begin with chapter 48? Well, I think we begin with the idea that chapter 48 is about protection. We are protected. Hmm. God keeps us full safely and makes a peace in the soul and brings it to rest by grace and makes it submissive and reconciles it to God. And she goes on throughout this whole chapter of 48, talking about protection and talking about the mercy and the grace that lends us protection. Um, I found myself wondering what it is that we're being protected from. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't name that specifically that I could find. Could you find that, Chris? Uh, no, that's a that's a that's an interesting puzzle. She mentions wrath, but she mentions that she doesn't see wrath except on man's part. Right. So There's what? No wrath yeah. But you're right. So I'm trying to just quickly skim through and count all of the times that the word protection or protecting or protect comes up and it's a lot. Um, Yeah. And I can't count quickly enough right now. Well, you know, I think (laughs) when she talks about our being protected, I think she assumes that we understand what we might need protection from. I mean, we know that she's not talking about protection from disease or, you know, falling off the ladder or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So she's, it's got to be being protected from um, Satan, protected from sin, protected from our own weaknesses, those kinds of things for sure. But she doesn't, she does not specifically spell it out. She does certainly spell out the fact that she sees no wrath in God. She sees wrath in, in human beings, but not in God. And the wrath that we understand is what we have in our own hearts, so to speak. So what is mercy for Julian? How does she, de- she defines mercy a couple of different ways. Well, she says the basis of mercy is love, and the action of mercy is our protection in love, again with protection. I think when, so, okay, so outside of the, of Julian and the revelations of divine love, when, when we use the word mercy, and my, my bishop, uh, Matt Gunter, is uh, a, a great fan of the phrase mercy and delight. It's kind of the, the, uh, the slogan of his whole 
episcopate. He talks endlessly about God's mercy and delight and how these two things are um, key keywords to understanding God's presence in our lives. Um, so not only mercy, which I think he takes very much from Julian, but, but also God's delight in us, um, how God um, enjoys watching what we do and seeing how we figure out life. But anyway, so mercy, um, I think outside of chapter 48, we talk about mercy as kind of an act of compassion, an act of um, care, and also an act of justice. Is justice kind of a, an element of mercy? I don't know. I <laughs> justice is a really hard word for me. Um, yeah, it, it's and if you have a word search for Julian and and you know sometime you know see where justice shows up because, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't think Julian it, talks no, about justice all that much. No, no. But do I mean just you know if people go out in the world and they say you know have mercy on me. Yeah. Or something like that. Is do you think most people have a sense that there's an element of justice involved? In Just mercy? in the common imagination. Yeah. I would love to think that people's common concept of justice had a big piece of mercy in it. I would love to think that. I, I sadly don't think that. I think <laughs> people see mer- justice as um, evening things out. Yeah. And Julian just does not see things, see anything as ever being evened out. I mean, God, you know, where she says, with pity, not blame, is how God looks at us and all our failings. And we have failings and failings and failings. And God just sort of brushes them aside. And shows mercy to us, which I guess is part of the whole protection thing, protecting us from our own, you know, from our own misdeeds and our own errors. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I I think mercy is um, is God's pity for us, although that sounds. You know, people don't want to be pitied. They that's that's not a you know, that's not that's not a, a fun concept for people. I mean, people would probably decline that. Actually, I like the idea of delight. You know, I I like if we were to satis, uh, substitute a word for God's love, I think God's delight would work very very well. Hmm. I mean, I know that God's love is big and delight seems more um, lightweight, more feathery, but but I don't think it has to. I mean, I think that the pleasure that God takes in us is pretty pretty big. 
Well, yeah, I think I, I think there are too many people who wander around with this idea that God is putting up with us. Um, oh yeah, Definitely. that God is, you know, that that uh, I, I never went through a uh, an evangelical phase. I know a lot of people who have, um, so I'm mischaracterizing it. I know, but people have told me that people have ex- tried to explain the kind of evangelical mindset to me, what, what the purpose of Jesus and the cross is. And they kind of make it sound as though like Jesus intervenes to protect us from this God who's barely able to contain this divine rage at our sinfulness. And if it wasn't for Jesus and the cross, you know, God would just be smiting us left and right. So that, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it sounds very far away from the idea of God um, enjoying humanity and what we get up to. Um, And certainly from the idea of God um, weeping because of the sorrowful things that we get up to. Um, Can I ask your opinion about this? So it's right at the very beginning of chapter 48, but our, Good Lord, the Holy Spirit, who is endless life dwelling in our soul, does these things, full safely keeps us and makes a peace in the soul. While we've all experienced moments of prayer where where we feel peaceful, and even moments where we feel peaceful not attached to times of conscious prayer, and it brings us to rest by grace and makes it submissive. I would love to hear anything you have to say about submissive that word submissive in the context of the spiritual life what i see that to mean is to completely abandon our will to god where we where we recognize that God is over all and in us and is everything to us. I think that modern people, maybe, maybe not just modern people, but people, people like to be in charge of themselves People like to make decisions for themselves. And and we do. I mean, of course we do. We we decide all the time about things. And we wanna we wanna take credit for the things that we do well. And we wanna check off some boxes and we wanna see that we've made progress. I mean, I wanna see that I've made progress by abandoning a certain kind of sin that I don't, that doesn't trouble me any longer. And so I'm like, you know, I can check that off and, and I'm, and I can kind of pat myself on the back and I can, um, I can consider myself having pleased God in doing that. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think, I mean, there's, I think that that is largely in error but the submission that she's talking about is, I think, is just saying, thy will be done. 
whatever you want for me, just tell me what you want and I'll do it. I will not, I will not latch on to anything in this world. I will not latch on to any person or any way of life or any object or any quality in myself that I am entirely yours to do with as you wish. And I, I see that in Julian throughout her writing. I see that in Julian just time and time again. And of course, in her life, as we know, um, she was, you know, she was flat on her back when she had this revelation and it changed her life. And years later, she went into the anchorage and spent her life alone, you know, with two windows and a cat. And, you know, and so she, it's not like she had this revelation and then she went off and, you know, became a, a cloth merchant, which she certainly could have done in, in Norwich at that time. It's It's hard to... It's a, it's a hard thing to hear how submissive Julian is suggesting we should be. I think that submissiveness or submission within a spiritual context is one of those words that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted. And um, Well, tell me what you think. And said at, at contrast with with kind of the, some of the dominant values that, that we walk around with in this life. And the other words that I think, so um, other words are like in, in prayer B in Eucharistic prayer B in the Episcopal church, we ask, we pray that all things would be put in subjection under, under your Christ, under your Christ. Yeah. And I've had a couple of people through the years come up to me and say, well, you know what? I feel uncomfortable praying for that. We start talking about it a little bit, and it's clear that what they're hearing in that word subjection, place things, all -hmm. things in subjection under your Christ, is that they're hearing subjugation. They're hearing um, that that we're praying that God will take everything and make it basically a mat for Christ to walk on, uh, which is subjugation, which is, which is, taking a, a people, uh, people, individuals or nations or whatever, and kind of grinding them into the dust and walking all over them. But that's, you know, when we, when we pray that all things be placed in subjection, what we're, what we're saying is that, that everything will be made a subject of Jesus Christ, the King. Kings have subjects, queens have subjects. Um, and so we're not saying subjugation. We're saying to, we're praying that everything should be placed in the, the correct relationship to the monarch, which is Christ the King. And then I think Americans often have difficulty thinking of Christ as a king, because of course our whole founding myth is that we rejected monarchy in America, right? Um, we're, we're the, the agents of democracy and, and we rejected 
uh, England and, and, and its kings, and then turned around and started fawning all over the royal family and their marriages. But that's, that's a different matter. Um, so I think it's hard for Americans in particular to accept the idea of, of Christ as a king. It's something that comes up every year with that last Sunday of the church calendar right before Advent, right? And I think it's difficult for us because we, yeah, as you said, we like to think of ourselves as the masters of our own ships. Um, and well, we're kind of willing to give Jesus some level of um, authority in our lives, we're not ready to think of ourselves as subjects all too often. And yet, as I, I've, I've preached Christ the King sermons in the past where I kind of bluntly say, like, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. <laughs> like, we're not voting on, on the truths that God imparts. We're either learning to live with them and to pattern our lives on them, or we are ultimately hurting ourselves. Uh, which I think that, and then that goes back to submission, the idea of, of subsuming my own opinions about how life should best be lived uh, beneath what God is trying to get done in this world. So yeah, subjection and subjugation, I think are two terms that, that get confused subjection is is a good thing and subjugation is not and then the other one i think it's just popped into my head is much more prevalent is is our misunderstanding of the concept of humility within mm. the spiritual life often we hear that christians should be humble that humility is a virtue that we should cultivate and too many people hear that as humiliation that part of being a Christian is to think that we're worthless. Um, but that's not, I mean, the, what humility is, is all about as you know, you know, this, um, um, is simply about finding our own accurate place within the order of things, um, to recognize that God has made us with special dignity and, privilege and role and responsibility is humanity. Um, you have made humans, but a little lower than the angels. It's uh, Psalm eight that says that. Mm -hmm. And yet we are not God. And so we are constantly thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought in some ways, but some of us are thinking of ourselves more lowly than we ought. And what humility is, is really just, um, putting ourselves accurately within the scheme of things, which is that we're not God, but neither are we worthless and neither are our brothers and sisters in this world worthless. Um, but I think, you know, humility is one of those things that I think there are a lot of people who kind of have a knee jerk reaction that when they hear that the church encourages them to, a spiritual discipline of humility or sp spiritual attitude of humility. Um, what they too often hear is an assumption that we're trying to um, mm. take them down a peg or two, which is not 
that's not what anyone's hopefully trying to do. Right. Um, I mean, for me, the idea of humility sort of cheers me up because it means that I'm part of God's purpose and I'm part of, and, and God is, you know, working with me day by day, moment by moment. And how glorious is that? Yeah. I mean, and yes, of course I make mistakes all the time. I mean, moment by moment, of course, but, but I know that I know that God is guiding me and I know that God is delighting in me. Hmm. And that makes me humble because, because it's what God does. And I mean, God sending his son to this earth to walk this earth with us. That, you know, that, that brings us into humility too, to see, to see how, to see how much God loves us is inspires humility to me. Hmm. Not, you know, not, not the other way around, not that, you know, being humble means to think poorly of myself. Being humble means to recognize where I come from, whose yeah. I am. Yeah. Well, anyway, that I just oh, yeah. wanted to drill into that word submissive a little bit. But, uh, okay, back to mercy, back to mercy and wrath. Okay. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think we, I think we hit it when saying that wrath was in our part. For we, because of sin and miserableness, have in us a wrath and a continuing opposition to peace and to love, and that he showed very often in his loving demeanor of compassion and pity. So God showed Julian how how we are. You know, how how all the wrath that we feel and our, you know, this world basically is set up. It's set up for us to be tried and challenged and blocked in so many ways. And, and that's. Julian will say that that is that that's okay that this is this is God setting these things up around us and any the many many times that we fail in our earthly endeavors in our earthly life to be perfectly as God wants us the many many times we fail we that creates wrath in us. That creates anger. We're disappointed. We're angry. We blame. And then we just assume that that's that, that God is actually angry with us. We project our failures onto God. We say, oh, God must be angry. Because this goes back mm-hmm. to all that you were saying earlier, Chris, about how people think you know, God's really angry with me, and so I need to, um, I need to, you know, do better so that God won't be angry with me anymore. I mean, how I was taught about sin is that 
is that I'm going to commit it. I, I will I commit a sin and God doesn't like me anymore. God's angry with me. Mm-hmm. And so then I have to be sorry for my sin. And then I have to do something to make up for it, whether it's, you know, prayers or a good work or something. And then God isn't angry with me anymore. God just kind of like, that's okay now, you know, until yeah. the next time. Yeah. And there will be a next time. And there is always a next time. And there is always a next time. So it, I find this bit fascinating, right? So this is just the second paragraph really in the orange book that I saw no wrath except on man's part and that he forgives in us for wrath is nothing else but a departure from and an opposition to peace and to love. I think that is pretty good definition. I think most people would agree that there's, there's wrath, this kind of rageful anger uh, on one hand and peace and love on the other. And that it's hard to be on both sides of those at once. And, but, but then the, the diagnosis of where wrath comes from, I think is fascinating. She says, either it comes from the failure of power or from the failure of wisdom or from the failure of goodness. I think that is a remarkably insightful mm-hmm. analysis, both on the individual level. When I'm thinking of the people that I know who seem to be consumed with wrath and even those times when I myself uh, fall into that. Mm-hmm. And when I take a look at kind of wrath played out in global politics and war and things mm-hmm. like that, um, the failure of wisdom, goodness, and power. I think power is the one that feels like a, like a good insight to me. I think mm-hmm. wisdom and goodness um those feel like like anyone could come up with with those two like we feel wrath we move away from peace and love because there's some failure of either wisdom in us or goodness in us like we're not wise or we're not good for a moment but a failure of power mm-hmm. that when i experience a failure of power in my life one of the side effects is that is that I become opposed to peace and love and become wrathful. Is that what she's saying? I think so. I think so. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, power... I think power is another one of those things that we collectively should spend a bit more time meditating on than we do. I mean, we all have power in various ways. We all have times when we feel powerless. We all have various entities and authority structures that have some sort of power over us. And sometimes we resent it. Sometimes we benefit from it. Power is very complicated. So is she saying that it's a failure of power that exists or power that we have, you know, in the individual who is experiencing wrath? Is it the failure of our wisdom or is it the failure of, was it wisdom elsewhere? And likewise, goodness. 
So if I see a situation in the world where power is misused, where wisdom has failed, and where goodness is absent, then I'm angry, then I'm wrathful? Is that what she's saying? Um, I guess you could. Uh, uh, one could read it that way. But maybe it's my orientation or maybe it's hers that I, um, I'm always assuming that, um, I'm always assuming that I'm interpreting things from the subject from if I personally am feeling wrath, Mm -hmm. which is my own personal departure from peace and love from opposition to peace and love, then that's a failure in me. And it's one of these three failures. So which is it? So even if I witness a failure of goodness elsewhere, if I see somebody doing something that is a failure of goodness or wisdom or power, if I feel wrath and I, I personally must have felt some sort of failure as well. And maybe it's, maybe it's, um, maybe one, one person's failure creates a failure in me. Um, sure. but I, I, I think I tend to look for descriptions of the inner spiritual landscape. Like I assume that, that whatever's happening outside, um, actually doesn't directly change anything within any of our souls, but indirectly, um, there is often a change in our souls, if that makes sense, or is that too confusing? No. Like if that, if, I, if mm-hmm. I witness something unjust or I witness something beautiful or something, there's a change, a harmonious change within me that my spirit leans towards um, one emotion or another. But those two are connected but not the same thing and there and so there are sometimes when some people can see an unjust act and have a very different emotional response within them particularly if they're kind of messed up you know there are some people who see unjust acts and because they themselves are somehow wounded or corrupted that their response to that their inner spiritual response is delight or glee or um that they see an unjust act done by someone else and they feel as though they are witnessing justice. Um, but I, I think I tend to see it um, uh, not necessarily an automatic connection between what's going on in the human heart and what's happening outside the human heart. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if Julian is seeing it that way, but. Yeah, I don't either. I, you know, it, it's, she talks so little about the world. You know, she talks yeah. so little about other people. I mean, she, she twice in the whole, in this whole volume mentions another human being only twice, yeah. once at the beginning and then once, you know, coming up farther along. Hmm. Um, and, uh, well, okay, so she the curate too. The curate, her mother, and then this mysterious person that we'll talk about later. Um <laughs> she 
you know, it's almost as if she has, it's almost as if she is directing her ideas and her thoughts and her revelation is only to an individual. And I mean, we know that she intended to share this with people. We know that that was like part of the part of the plan from very much the beginning. So it's not that she's, um, it's it's not that she doesn't care about the human race or anything because she obviously does. But she never talks about she never talks about others. She never talks about problem people or problem situations. And she lived in a very very difficult time. Yeah. And but she just wipes that out. She doesn't talk about that. I think that's why she's rightly considered a theologian because she's talking mostly about the interrelationships of concepts. Yeah. You know, mercy and wrath and grace and love and how these correspond with each other. It's, yeah. it's very theoretical. It is. Um, it is. So mercy is obviously linked to love. It is a, a working out of love um, mixed with pity. So love and compassion somehow generate mercy, the activity of protectiveness, of loving protectiveness. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. But what about this concept? This is on page 113 in the Orange Book. This this um, mercy out of love allowing us to fail. Wouldn't it be more merciful to not allow us to fail at all? Or no. does God see <laughs> failure to a limited extent as being necessary for our growth? Well, it is necessary that we die in as much as we fall short of the sight and sense of God, who is our life. Our failing is frightful, our falling is shameful, and our dying is sorrowful. But still in all this, the sweet eye of pity and of love never departs from us, and the working of mercy ceases not. So wouldn't it be better if God could somehow create a world in which failing, falling, and dying didn't exist? People ask this question all the time, yeah. and the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> but why is that? I mean, those things suck, and nobody likes them, and they bring pain and suffering into our lives. We would just be a static creature if we didn't have these things, if nothing changed and anytime anything changes, that means that this, it's going to be good and it's going to be bad. And you can't have it. It can't have it be good unless it can also be bad. And in this great world that we have of, you know, seven and a half billion people and lots of everything else, it is impossible that there not be, that there not be change and it is impossible that there not be trials and badness for us to see and recognize and react to. Yes, God probably could have made a world where everybody was always good and everything went smoothly and nobody had any anything, any anything to any any trials or tribulations. 
But then the first day of the world, the first day of creation would be the same as the last day of creation and nobody would grow Hmm. and nobody would. Well, I don't, I don't know that nobody would feel the need of God, but I, I think it's possible, but I don't think there would be, I don't think there would be change. I don't think that there would be a dynamic. Yeah. I don't think people would feel the need for God. Okay. Um, if there was no change, because, I mean, what, what is it? Annie Lamott, who has that book about the three basic prayers, help and thank yeah. you. And, and please, please. Like that or, or wow. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That at least two of those, help and thank you, are born from the uh, the sense that there's a gap between the mm-hmm. way things are now and the way they should be. And we say help because we want something to change. And if we lived in a world with no change, it would never even occur to us to ask for help because we wouldn't need it. We wouldn't be aware of the need for it. Right. And we don't say thank you unless we are aware of being the recipients of a gift, which means that something has changed. Um, you feel grateful because you are conscious that you have benefited somehow. Um, so, okay. So if things happen, if, if we live in a dynamic world and things are changing and change means that, um, sort of a Newtonian idea that, that every change has both good and bad consequences, but we don't live in a zero sum universe where all the good stuff balances out the bad stuff. Right. When we get to page 114, I have this theory that just popped into my head that mercy and grace are God's answer to the zero sum universe. Here's the theory, right? So if every change means that there's good, good stuff that happens and also bad stuff that happens, but they don't balance out because mercy and grace are God's way of saying that the good stuff that happens is good and the bad stuff that happens will become good. Mm-hmm. So in the grand scheme of things, everything tends towards good. Suffering still happens, but it will be transformed. So there's really no such thing as the bad stuff. There's only the stuff that is temporarily bad before it is redeemed. And I get that from... This is reading 101 on page 114 in the Orange Book. Mercy works and grace works, and this is from the abundance of love, for grace converts our frightful failing into plenteous, endless solace. So the bad stuff gets made by grace into good stuff. And grace converts our shameful falling into noble, honorable rising. And grace converts our sorrowful dying into holy, blissful life. So we live in this world where we're constantly experiencing change. And some of that brings delight and joy to us. And that's good. Let's have more delight and joy in this life. But then it also brings sorrow and grief and anxiety and worry and uh, fear into our lives. But Julian is saying that the, all that stuff that seems to be the negative side effect of life 
is in the process of being transformed into the good stuff. So there's the good stuff that we experience and there's the bad stuff that eventually will be good. So in the end, there's plenty of change. We live in a dynamic changing universe in which everything tends towards plenteous, endless solace, noble, honorable, rising, and holy, blissful life. So the bad stuff that's happening to us now won't always be bad. That's my theory for today. I agree with that. <laughs> I, I, cannot, I cannot find even one thing to... Um... To counter it, not at all. Um, she does talk about mercy and grace at, in two separate spheres, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about mercy. Let's see where is it. Um, mercy is a pity-filled, pity-filled attribute which belongs to motherhood in tender love, and grace is a dignified attribute which belongs to the royal lordship in the same love. Mm. And this is one of the um, one of the things about Julian that stands out for her in her time is viewing viewing God as both mother and father. And she she kind of overly genders mercy and grace here, mercy being the female attribute, grace being the male attribute. Mm-hmm. And that was very, a very normal kind of way of looking at things in her. And it sort of, um, it doesn't sit as well with us in this modern day as it probably would have, you know, six, 700 years ago when Julian was around 600 years ago. Anyway, um, she, uh, there's, there has been, and there, there is, um, talk i guess that her attributing female attributes to god is one of the things that um raised some hackles uh toward her in her time and made her in a sort of an iffy uh in an iffy way which she obviously survived just fine but Mm -hmm. that was uh that that was a, a sort of, and she does talk about our mother, Jesus, and yeah. and that sort of thing. So, but that was very, very outside the realm of, of normal in her time. Well, and I thought, so this, there's a great introduction by Father John Julian to this book. So I was aware of a few other places where people had talked about the motherhood of, of mm-hmm. God or the motherhood of Christ. I was aware of a few others like um, Anselm Canterbury had done it that I knew of and uh, Catherine of Siena had done it that I knew of. But then there's this list. Have you seen this list? It's it's, uh, in John Julian's introduction of all the other people who had referred to the motherhood of Christ or the motherhood of God. Adam of Persane. Alred, Albert the Great, Anselm, Aquinas, Augustine, Bernard Bernard of Cluny, Bonaventure, Bridget of Sweden, Catherine of Siena, Clement of Alexandria, Dante, William Fleet, Gilbert of Hoyland, Garrick of Igny, Guigno II, the Carthusians, 
the Carthusian Guigo, sorry, the second, the Carthusian, Helenan <laughs> de Freudmont, Isaac of Stella, Marjorie Kemp, Peter Lombard, Ludolf of Saxony, Marguerite of Oint, a relative of yours. Yeah. Mechtild of Magdeburg, Richard Roll, William of St. Thierry, the Ancrene Rule, uh, the Stimulus Amoris, and Holy Scripture itself. So way more than I thought. But I wonder how many of those writers were, you know, so it's clearly not the first time that, that the concept has come up, but I wonder how popular the idea was. Like if it's something that was a common motif accepted among a certain kind of class of mystics and spiritually adept people, because like, I, I do know that, that from my limited studies in the history of mysticism, that there's a whole lot of stuff that was taken for granted among like a class of mystics okay. that, yeah. that wasn't well known about. I mean, even the story of, of the revelations, of divine love. It was not popularly known around England. It was beloved in certain religious houses. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't like something that anybody could have access to. Um, and not even within um, like the, the regular hierarchy of the church. And and it was true. Uh, so Saint John of the Cross's commemoration is today. The the writings of Teresa and Avila and John of the Cross were shared greatly uh, and enthusiastically among uh, the religious houses where there was a lot of contemplative work going on. But outside of that, even in the diocesan clergy, um, some of these ideas would would have been completely bewildering and scandalous. Not to mention, you know, the laity who had very little access to some of this stuff. So I think it's, you know, it sounds fresh and new and modern to our ears to talk about God as mother. But I'm convinced that there's, that, that it's not surprisingly far more complicated than, than we know it to be. Yeah. Um, But Julian does gender these qualities, though. Mercy is definitely the feminine thing in her mind, and grace is definitely, well, royal lordship def definitely sounds as though it's a masculine thing in her mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in that sense, are they integrated in this concept that Julian has? Oh, I think so. I think that they um, come forth. They come forth abundantly and without, without regard to anything. I mean, I, I'm not sure why she, why she distinguishes them that way, unless it is hmm. to make it more um, concrete for people to understand and to see. Oh, it's this way. Oh, it's that way. And yeah. You know, people certainly had very strong distinctions between what was masculine and what was feminine then. And it may have been just a matter of 
um, making it clear for people, you know, making it, uh, yeah, yeah, making it clear. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why she, um, why she might have distinguished them that way. Although I'm not getting anything that she thinks that one comes first and then the other one or one's bigger than the other one. I'm not getting that at all. So she goes on to distinguish uh, what mercy does and what grace does. Mercy works in these modes, protecting, enduring, bringing life and healing. And all this is from tenderness of love. And all those kind of feel maternal. Like the image that I have in my mind is that mercy is the one who kind of gives us a hug and, mm-hmm. and you know, puts the Band-Aid on our skinned knee and lets us know that it's all going to be okay. And grace works, building up, rewarding, and endlessly going beyond what our loving and our labor deserves, spreading out widely, and showing the noble, plenteous largesse of God's royal lordship and his marvelous courtesy. Um, And that feels a lot more active to me, a lot more um, um, kind of, you know, go, go out and and do good things and we'll be here to cheer you on. Um, so two sides of the same coin. Uh, and, and I could see how they are both parts of a full blown expression of love. Um, because we do need to be consoled sometimes, and then we need to be encouraged and cheered on at other times, sometimes both at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I see just comprehensiveness. She's trying to, to broaden the definition rather than to limit it. Yes. Yes, for sure. Anyway, are we to what 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 else do we have to say or is that about it for today? I think we're probably good. Um she does uh project again into the future about how just so on the contrary grace makes solace, honor and bliss for us in heaven exceedingly earthly to such an extent that when we come up and receive the sweet reward which grace has created for us, then we shall thank and bless our Lord endlessly rejoicing ever we suffered woe. So we are going to be glad, we will rejoice that we ever suffered woe. So all the woe that we are, that we experience in life, will be turned into glory. And when we receive our reward in heaven, we will be grateful that we plodded through our miserable lives with all the, with all the wrath and with all the anger and with all the failings because there we'll have this wonderful reception and this wonderful outpouring of love unto us and we'll be glad our reward 
And thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.